Well, we all know something of the significance of what goes on in a human courtroom, even if you've never been to a courtroom, perhaps you've just seen it on TV, or you've heard about it, or you know someone who's been through it. You know the significance of what is going on and the anticipation of hearing the ruling of the judge. Perhaps you or a loved one have been wronged, and you long for justice. Well, then the ruling there is one that you are eager to hear. Or maybe you're the one who's on trial, or a loved one is the one on trial, and you hope to be found not guilty. Again, you're going to be eager to hear what the ruling is in that courtroom. And so regardless of what side you're on, either if you're the one on trial or if you're the one longing for justice, there is a great anticipation to hear the judgment of a judge in a human courtroom. And depending on what the judgment is, there's going to either be sweet relief or great turmoil. And so if this is true even in a human court, well then how much more true will it be on the last day when we stand face to face with the King of Kings to be judged for all eternity? We're in the middle of our Advent series and we're covering what is called the four last things, quite a different Advent, ser- Advent series than what we perhaps are used to, but the four last things are these, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And these certainly are not your average Advent themes, at least not in this day and age, but I do hope that as we think on Advent uh, this year and even in the years to come, we would continue to think on these themes because with every passing year, as every year comes to a close, we are just one year closer to experiencing these last things. The certainty of death. We will all die. The terrors of judgment day. And then after that, the joys of heaven or the pains of hell. And so last week, Tate kicked us off in this series by preaching on death. And particularly, he preached on, on death as being gain for the Christian. And then after death, of course, comes judgment. It is appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes judgment. And even every week, we've done it already. When we confess the Apostles' Creed together, we say this. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he will come to judge the living and the dead. And that's what our text is about this morning. So listen to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33. It starts like this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So let me make just a few observations as we get started here. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Make no mistake about it, this is Jesus who is going to come. He is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the, the title that Jesus used most often to refer to himself. And the scene that's being described is the second advent. That is the second coming of Jesus. And to describe this second coming, there are two images here. One is that of a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. But even this image is given to help us understand the main thing that's going on here. And that is the scene of judgment. That is the scene of a a king who is seated on his throne. 
And this is an image that we probably don't understand very well unless you're familiar with the, the imagery of the throne in the Bible. But, but when a king takes the throne, he is not just having rule, although that is true, and authority and dominion, but he's also in the place where he is about to execute justice. We hear of this when Solomon built his own palace. We get this description of the throne room. It says this in 1 Kings 7. And when Solomon made the hall of the thrones where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. So the, the hall of the throne was the place where judgment would be carried forth. And of course, Solomon was the king who was known for his wisdom and his ability to bring about justice. And so as we look at this scene here, the scene of the Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ in his glory with all his angels coming to sit on his glorious throne, what we ought to do is this. We should be anticipating the second coming of Jesus as the judge. And that's what I want us to do. As we're preparing for Advent, we should look forward to this day knowing that it is coming. Just as certain as death is for all of us, so too we can be sure that every one of us will stand before Christ on that day to be judged. And so we should know who the judge is to whom we will stand before. First, I want us to see this. Christ's judgment is wonderful for some and yet terrifying for others. Certainly when you think about Advent, we're, we're most likely, if we've, we've grown up in the American church, we think about baby Jesus, meek and mild, there at the nativity scene. But I don't want us to stop there when we think about Advent, because when Jesus returns again, it'll be nothing like his first coming. In Christ's first coming, he came in the, the weak form of a human baby, and King Herod sought to kill Jesus. But when Christ returns again, the wicked kings like Herod and all the rest, they will be the ones who take flight from him. Listen to Revelation verse, chapter 6, verse 15 says this, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling for the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Quite different from Herod looking to kill Christ. And this is what we see even in our own text this morning. Listen to the judgment that he makes to those on his left, those goats, those wicked people. In verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What a dreadful day that will be for those on his left. But for those who belong to Christ, it is the complete opposite. It is the best day. It is the greatest thing that will ever happen to you. To hear these words from Christ, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And so on that day, it'll be terrifying for some and for the rest of us who are in Christ. It will be a wonderful day. That is because Christ, his judgment is just. Let me illustrate this by reminding you of the, the image of 
Lady Justice, if you've seen it on a court, her on a, a courthouse or something like that, you know this image. She carries balanced scales, representing that every person who is judged in that court will be given a, a fair trial. She also is seen wearing a blindfold, which represents that all the people that go through that courthouse will be judged apart from any biases. There will be no judgment to some that are rich, That'll be given a greater trial, a more advantage than those who are poor, but rather they would be judged according to what they've done. And then the third thing that you see with her is she's wielding a sword, which is a symbol that represents that she is ready to execute justice to those who have done what is evil. And so in a human court of law, of course, this is the ideal, but justice is not always executed perfectly in human courts. But understand, this ideal of justice does not come from man. Man cannot execute it perfectly. But, but furthermore, we, we long for this because it comes from God. Listen to the words of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, when he appointed his judges to rule the land. Second Chronicles 19, Jehoshaphat said, Consider what you do, for you judge, not for man, but for the Lord. He's speaking to his judges. You don't judge for man, but for the Lord. He who is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality in taking bribes. You understand what the saying? He's saying this, God is just, and so you, judges, those who are gonna rule and judge those who have done evil, you should rule in the same way, justly. And so, this isn't always done perfectly in human courts. And yet, before God, the judge of all mankind, justice will be served perfectly, without any partiality. Before him will be Jews and Gentiles, and both will be judged. And, and Paul says this in Romans 2, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So understand, the family you've been born into isn't going to give you an advantage or disadvantage on that day of judgment. Furthermore, even your status in society doesn't matter. Paul also picks up this theme in Ephesians when he's talking to the masters of slaves. He says this in Ephesians 6, masters, they're, they're being told not to threaten their servants because God is both the judge of the master and the slave, and there is no partiality with him. He will judge both of them and bring about justice. So Christ's judgment will be executed with perfect justice. Each person will reap what they have sown. That's what we see in our text as well, Matthew 25, 46. And the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Furthermore, Christ's judgment is inescapable. We cannot hide from God, God's judgment that is coming. It is a universal judgment. Matthew 25, 32, it says, before him will be gathered all the nations. Every single nation, whether they've heard of Christ or not, will be there at this judgment. 
So one cannot hide from Christ's judgment any more than Adam and Eve were able to hide themselves from God there in the garden after they had sinned against him. And furthermore, you cannot even hide your sins from Christ's judgment. Ecclesiastes 12 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so if you think you're getting away with your sin, that you haven't been caught yet, understand this. The day of judgment is coming. And if you have sin that is hidden and you think you're getting away with it, understand Christ will expose it on the last day. Nothing is hidden from him. In fact, not just the secret things we've done with our hands, but even the secret sins that are in our hearts. When the Lord comes, 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purpose of the heart. This is why Jesus, when he was among the Pharisees and scribes, it says the Pharisees and scribes, they said to themselves of Jesus, they said, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? How does it feel? How would it feel, perhaps, if, if a person could know your inmost thoughts? Terrifying. And Christ, he, he knows your thoughts. You see, the, the Lord sees not man as man sees. Man looks in the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. And this is the judgment by which he will judge us with. He will look at the the heart, our inmost being. So his judgment, it is, it is inescapable. And finally, his, his judgment, it is eternal and final. Here in our text, we see those on the left and those on the right, they're given their due. And to the wicked, it says they will go into eternal punishment. Eternal punishment, that word eternal, is beyond what we could fathom but the righteous into eternal life. Again, beyond anything that we could possibly think or imagine. So his judgment, it is eternal. It is unending. In a human court or law, yeah, mistrials can happen because of a lack of evidence or because of a, an unjust ruling, but God is just and he knows everything. And so with this, his judgment is final. He gets the last word. And even if we try to make excuses and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do all these mighty works in your name? Understand, all these excuses are nothing to him. You will not be able to make excuses on that day. He will simply say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So death, it is certain. And so is judgment. And the judgment day will be wonderful for God's people and terrifying for those who do not belong to him because he will rule and judge with justice because we cannot escape his judgment and because his judgment is final and eternal. So if you are in Christ this morning, well, then you can say, when he says, surely I am coming true, you can say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You can agree with all the saints and looking forward to and anticipating his arrival again. For the wicked, Christ's return and his judgment will be a day of terror for you. And so in light of these things, we ought to examine ourselves, know where we stand here today, 
while we still have breath in our lungs because when Christ comes, and he is coming soon, when he comes, he will judge the living and the dead. And so as we prepare for Advent, we should do so by examining ourselves before we are judged. Do you do this? Do you make a habit of of looking at your life here and now? Because as we just saw before, in the last day, Christ is going to examine you. So, So prepare for Advent this day. Look at your life. Examine your life. And as we do so, we're not looking about where we stand in society. We're not concerned about perhaps whether we've met all our New Year's resolutions from the last year. These aren't the things we're examining. We're not looking at our position and, and, and our job. These aren't the categories by which we are going to be judged by, so we should not make too much of these things, but rather we should see this. This is the only category that matters. Do you belong to Christ or not? Or as our text has it, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Because here in the final judgment, the rest of these things will not matter. All the nations, all the variety of people from all times, both past, present, and future, will be before Christ that day. Matthew 25, 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. So there's great variety here in this scene, and yet there's only two main groups. He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from his goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. See, most of us spend more time thinking about about this life that is perishing, this life that is fleeting, and not about this eternal judgment that will be made. So let's ask the question this morning. Let's examine ourselves. Are we sheep? Or are you a goat? This distinction is of the utmost importance for each of us as it has eternal consequences for us. But how are we to tell which ones we are, whether we're sheep or goat? Well, listen to, to how Jesus judged both those on the left and those on the right. First, those on the right, he said in Matthew 25, 33 and following, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We'll come more to what that means in a little bit. But for now, look at this is the judgment. This is the ground on the basis of what he separates them. He says, You've done all these things. This is the evidence set before them. The justice being brought forward saying, you belong to Christ. You are, in fact, a lamb, a sheep. But the goats are not so. He continues in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. 
Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Just a few observations about this text. Both lists, both both the things that they did and didn't do for both the sheep and the goat, they're both identical. They are being judged on the same standard. And furthermore, we often think that it is the worst of sins and the worst of sinners who deserve hell. You know what we see here about the goats? It's not anything that they had committed, either good or bad, but it's what they failed to do. They failed to do good. And when these sins here are mentioned just as well, these sins of omission, we would do well to remember that there are far more sins that day that will be brought to account as well. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That is to say, there are plenty more that could be listed here. I warned you, Paul said, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. So this is not an exhaustive list here in our text. But to be clear, these are not great sins that have been committed. In fact, they didn't even fail to do great things. What they failed to do is the simple, small, little things, like giving water to those who are thirsty and food to those who are hungry, like going to their brothers who have been falsely accused and are put in prison, like those who are messengers of the gospel and yet they're not welcomed into their homes and so on and so forth. But this leads to a, an important question. We might look at this list and other lists like it and say, well, then are we saved by works? The obvious answer is no. That much is clear. The scriptures are abundantly clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not the result of works so that no one may boast. And so if you look at that list of things and you go, uh-huh, I earned salvation because I've, I've given someone water this week. Well, then you're misunderstanding the text altogether. So we are not saved by works. Make that clear in your mind. But if that's true, then what is going on here in our text? Well, it's important to recognize that Jesus does not separate them on the basis of merely what they've done, but rather he separates them because of who they are. That is actually what they are. There are different species here, two completely different animals, sheep and goats. And this is the basis of his judgment. He, he separates them from one another. And so understand, we are, we are not saved through our works. The judgment is not on the basis of works alone, but we are saved because Christ has, has made us new. He's transformed us. He has made us his, his sheep, his flock, his, his people to whom he is, he is our shepherd. And so we belong to him. And the evidence of, of our belonging to him is seen in what we do. This is how James puts it. He says the very same thing. It's, it's not first and foremost what you do. It's who you are and who you are affects what you do. James 3, 11 through 12, he says, does a spring 
pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water. He doesn't answer it, but the obvious answer is no. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Again, the obvious answer, no. They produce what they are. And so then he continues, he says, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. That is to say, the things that come out of us. Here, James has the mouth in mind, but even the things we do, whether it's giving water or food or clothing or whatever it might be, the things we do are a reflection of, of who we are. And so we could say it this way. If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it is probably a duck. And so it is with the sheep and the goat. If you walk like a sheep, then you're probably a sheep. But if you walk like a goat, you're probably a goat. So are we saved by works? Absolutely not. But to be clear, if you belong to God and if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are a new creation. And if you are a new creation and dwelled by the Spirit of God, make no mistake about it, you will produce fruit. And so this leads us to the point here that we need to examine ourselves, examine our lives, examine the fruit that is coming out of us. We talk about this every week. We're going to talk about it again when we come to communion. But every time we get to communion, we say, examine yourself. Examine yourself that you might see whether or not you are in the faith or not. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves. See whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. There should be evidence of Christ in you. Do you not see this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that you have not failed the test. And I might add to this. As we examine ourselves pretty good at, at deceiving ourselves, justifying ourselves for our sins, even, even pushing away the sins that we don't want to think about. So if you try to justify your sin, what benefit would that have you? Or if you try to hide your sin from other people, again, how does that serve you? If you recognize your sin, and all the while you do not repent of your sin, you need to understand this. You are playing with the eternal hellfire. And when Christ comes in judgment, he will not justify you of your sins that you tried to self-justify. And he will not cover over the sins that you tried to hide. But instead, he will shed light on those sins. He will expose those sins and he will judge you for your sin. So as you examine yourself, don't lie to yourself. Let me go a step further, though. It's not just our own personal examination that we should do regularly, but even this is what we do in church. There's a corporate dimension to what's going on here. We should be watching out after one another. This is why church membership is so important, that there's no, no like solo sheep going through life apart from doing this together and having shepherds as well who are going to help guide you through life, lest you think you're wise and doing well, only to find out that you are living in sin. This is what the, the, the writer of Hebrews says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, 
And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day that he's talking about is the day of judgment. And then he says, this is why. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So do you have brothers and sisters in Christ in your life who you would actually listen to? Or perhaps even a step further back is brothers and sisters in your life who know you well enough to be able to see the sin in your life and actually address it. If not, I'd encourage you to figure out how you might draw other believers near to yourself so you and them might sharpen one another and encourage one another all the more. And again, the need of corporate, this corporate examination is even seen in uh, this is hard, hard to think about, but in church discipline, we don't like to even use the word excommunication because it makes us feel all uncomfortable, but it is a gracious, gracious thing when one continues in unrepentant sin for them to be cast out of the church. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, you are to deliver this man. This man is living in unrepentant sexual sin. You are to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Here's the purpose. Why do we excommunicate a person who's living in sin? so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord, that is the final judgment. So when church discipline happens, what we're doing is we, in this life here and in a small scale, we're saying, you know what? It doesn't look like there's fruit in your life that prove, that are evidence that you are in fact a sheep, that you in fact belong to Christ. And so what you do then is you hand them over to Satan because you say, that's who you belong to. Your father's not Abraham. But your father is Satan. And we do that, and it sounds so severe, and it is so severe, but we do so so that they might come to their sentence, senses and recognize that Christ will judge and execute perfect justice on the last day against sin. And so all, this, all the more, I'd encourage you, examine your life. Do you bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. Are there other people in your life who might help you examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith? Well, upon examination, then what are the results? Well, of course, there's only two results, as we said at the beginning. You're either a sheep or a goat. So if you, upon examining yourselves, you see good fruit and you think you're a sheep, well, then you have good reason to look forward to the day of Christ's return. You can say, amen, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And all the same, in the meantime, listen to Paul's exhortation to the Galatians. He would tell you, do not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. In other words, if you are a sheep, keep doing what sheep do. But if you think that you are a goat, what then? Should you start behaving like a sheep? If you're a goat, should you make it your aim to start feeding the hungry and giving water to those who are thirsty? If you think you might be a goat, should you start welcoming the stranger into your home and clothing those who are naked? If you think you're a goat, should you go visit the sick and those who are in prison? Do doing these things transform a goat into a sheep? Let me illustrate it this way. 
I have a golden retriever. We had it before I had kids, and uh, it probably explains why we did this, but uh, I had a picture, and I forgot to put it up there, but um, perhaps by boredom or some other reason, we decided to put a shirt on my golden retriever, one of my shirts on my golden retriever. He looked hilarious. But putting that shirt on the dog did not turn him into a human. He's still a dog, regardless of what is on the outside. And so once again, the same would go for those goats who try to look like sheep. Putting on something on the outside will not make a goat a sheep. Our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, Isaiah 64 says. And so if we try to do good works in order to earn salvation, you're just, you're not saved. You're missing the point altogether. What you need is not fruit to be tacked on to a bad tree. Jesus said it this way, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. And so if you think you're a goat this morning, understand this is what you need to happen. You need to be transformed. You need to be made into a new being, a new creation. No amount of good works can actually do this. It cannot accomplish it. What you need is a work that only Christ can do. And so this is what he did in his first advent. He, he came to accomplish that very end, to make us new. And so as we prepare for advent, we should do so by remembering Christ's first coming when he was judged. Do you remember the, the position of the king when he goes to make judgment? At the very beginning, we saw it. When Jesus comes, he's going to come and he's going to sit in his throne. That's the position of a king who's about to rule and execute justice. Well, when Christ first came, he did not come and assume the position on, as a king on the throne to judge the nations. But rather, when Jesus came, his enthronement was seen on the cross where his blood would be shed to save people from every nation. And so let us recount the trial that led up to the cross because Christ too was judged in a court. Look first at John 19, verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. We're going to come to this in a little bit, but I want you to see it loud and clear. He's sitting down in the seat where he's going to execute judgment, where he, Pilate, this human ruler, is about to do justice, or so that was what he was supposed to do. But that's not what happened. Let's go back now. John 18, verses 38 through 40. This is now... Again, Pilate speaking, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. He's speaking of Christ here. I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. What's the juxtaposition here? What's the difference here? You've got Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
sinless. And even in a human court, I find no guilt in him. And put next to him is Barabbas, the criminal. But the people, they, they would prefer a criminal over the perfect son of God. What kind of hardness of heart would have to be in a man to look at Jesus and hate him so much? Jesus, the guiltless one, unworthy to be condemned even before the sight of Pilate, and yet men would rather take a criminal over him. The text continues into chapter 19. It's an unfortunate chapter break, but look at 19 verses 1 through 4. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. This is the, this is the image of royalty, but it's a mock royalty. It is not the crown that he deserves. And furthermore, they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you might know that I find no guilt in him. This is the second time now that he has said, This man hasn't done anything wrong. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Three times pronounced not guilty. Skip ahead to verse 12. He didn't see any guilt in him. So from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat of the place called the Stone Pavement and in the Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, here's that scene once again. You see him. He's taking the seat of judgment. He's about to execute justice. Or so you would hope. You would hope he would see that Christ is without fault and let him go. But that's not what happens now it was the day of Pentecost, in preparation of Pentecost. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Christ the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one to whom has no fault, the one who is supposed to be the judge, instead, placed in a judgment, condemned to die as a man who is guilty. An unjust trial by an unjust judge. But this was not just man's doing. This was God's plan. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, 
we might become the righteousness of God. You understand what that means? It means you who were guilty are no longer guilty if in fact you are in Christ because Christ, the sinless one, died for your sins. So do you want to be a sheep? If so, then look to Christ's enthronement on the cross. This is how you will be transformed by beholding Christ crucified. Look at Christ and believe in him. Look at Christ and love him. How could you not? So this is the question. If you're a sheep or a goat, this is the question that really matters. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you love Jesus? If you do, you're doing well. If you don't, the coming wrath of God is a day that you ought to dread. But if you love him, you're doing well. Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. If you love God, if you love Jesus, if you look at him and go, what a wonderful thing he has done, you are, you are loving him. You are obeying his commands. But it doesn't stop there. He says there's a second commandment that is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the term, it is like it. How can loving man be compared to being like loving God? Well, understand, if you love God, you will love your fellow man to whom he is made in his image. And moreover, you will love your brother who not only bears the image of Christ, but who has the spirit of Christ in him. And so if you love Jesus, understand the second commandment that is like it will happen as well. You will love your neighbor as yourself. If you love Jesus, you will love his church. Do you not recall what Jesus said to the sheep and the goats as well in this last judgment? I was hungry, verse 35, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. When did we ever see Jesus? That's what, that's what the righteous ask. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, the second commandment is like the first because when you love your brother, your sister in Christ, you are in fact loving Christ himself. That is the closeness of our fellowship and union with Christ when he is in us. When we serve and love one another, we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the, the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to Paul when he was in prison, they did so out of an abundance of love for King Jesus. And when Epaphroditus was sick, the same Philippians who were concerned for his welfare did this. They were concerned for him because of their abundance of love for King Jesus. Even Lydia, when she urged Paul and Silas to stay in her home, why did she do this? She was a, a recent convert, but she welcomed him 
them into their home because she had an abundance of love for King Jesus and his church. And so John says this, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So church, do you love Jesus? Because if you do, the fruit of sheep, the works of sheep will be evident in your life. Because if you love Jesus, then you will also love his bride. I want to close by, by reading a familiar passage, John three sixteen, and then onward into 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That sending of Christ not to condemn the world, that's the first advent. Understand though, in the second coming, he will judge and he will condemn those who are guilty. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There will be many on the last day who stand before the throne of God surprised to not be among the sheep, but they'll find themselves among the goats instead. Let that not be us. Let us not be surprised in the last day, because the judgment that will be made clear then should be as clear to us today that we belong to Christ. And so when Christ comes, may we with the multitude say in heaven, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are true and just, that you are holy and perfect. But Lord, we also thank you that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So Lord, we confess to you that we are sinners, great sinners in need of a Savior. So even now, would you continue to convict us of sin and give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness? Lord, continue to make us new by the work of your Spirit. And on that day, may we be found with you, praising you and glorifying you for your justice and mercy. Lord, we love you and thank you for Christ. We thank you for the cross. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.